Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So um, we've been doing this um, this series on Shanti Deva's uh, guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. And um, out of the 10 chapters, we've covered three so far. Uh, so tonight we're on number four. The first three chapters have to do with um, the uh, describing the gift of bodhicitta, the power of bodhicitta, the aspiration to awaken fully, not only for yourself, but for the benefit of all beings. The first chapter is the benefits of doing this, how it changes your orientation to your life and particularly your Dharma practice, if this is something that, uh, that you are, you're moved to do, to practice waking up the Buddha's path, if you do it with that spirit of generosity, that you're doing it not just for yourself, but for the benefit of all, it gives a, a, a real depth to uh, and a juice to your um, commitment. And the, the second chapter, uh, you might recall, is about um, preparing the ground, the offering, the, um, um, the supplication and the asking for the blessings of, of all Buddhas, Bodhisattvas being seen and unseen to, um, to support you in this aspiration um, and to plant that intention in the most fertile, richest soil possible. The third chapter is taking the vow, taking that aspiration. May I be a a boat for those who want to cross the sh cross to the other shore. May I be a guardian and a protector for all those who need it. For those who are suffering, may I be the medicine, the doctor, the nurse. And it is that statement of intention. Okay, I'm committing to do this. This next chapter and uh, the uh, two following ones are about working with the things that get in the way. You might have the loftiest intentions, but it's not so easy to be a bodhisattva. <laughs> it's not so easy to, mm, to be coming from that place of selfless service it's not so easy sometimes just not to create a mess in our lives with our habits of greed, hatred, and delusion, the big three. Um, so this next chapter, uh, which is sometimes translated as awareness or carefulness or heedfulness, um, Pema Chodron calls it using our intelligence, is seeing how, how being more and more conscious, we can keep ourselves from 
getting caught in these tendencies, the confusions that we've practiced for so long, the habitual patterns of mind that we're hooked by normally. Uh, and Shanti David talks about both the power of mindfulness or the power of awareness and also how we get hooked. And it's a very humbling um, exposition about how easily it is for him to get hooked. He's talking about his own his own aspiration and it's something that we can all uh, relate to. So I'll I'll read some of the um, some of the the verses and we can comment along the way. Um, and I, I've been using this uh, this book by Pema Chodron, No Time to Lose, her commentary which on the Bodhisattva's way of life, Shanti Deva, which also has the whole um, the whole text. And she makes the the point that. Um, what he's trying to do here is once you make that commitment, you're, you want to keep growing in the commitment and without attentiveness, it's easy to fall into bad habits. So this, this practice, this chapter is about keeping, it, keeping the momentum moving and not having it decline. And it's not just about being a good person. You know, oh, you know, sometimes people think, oh, uh, a bodhisattva is just a really good person. Well, that's not all there is to it. If you're taking the commitment, as Shanti David talks about, you are taking a brave, courageous, fearless step to take a look at anything and everything that gets in the way of your awakening. So, um, this is a quite demanding and inspiring commitment that he's calling on himself to do and on all of us to do. I'll read a, a little bit. The children of the conqueror, that is, uh, uh, those who take the, the bodhisattva path, the, con the real conqueror, the one who can conquer one's mind. The children of the conqueror, also the Buddha, uh, who thus have firmly grasped this bodhicitta should never turn aside from it, but should always strive to keep its disciplines. And when you are mindful, you are first mindful of the commitment that you've made. And the disciplines are these uh, perfections of generosity and conduct and patience and um, effort and mindfulness and wisdom. Whenever, whatever was begun without due heed and all that was not properly conceived, although a promise and a pledge were given, it is right to hesitate, to press on or draw back. He's saying, think really carefully before you make this commitment. You know, don't do it half-heartedly. Really get a sense of what you're getting into. Yet all the Buddhas and their heirs have thought of this in their great wisdom. I myself have weighed and pondered it. So why should I now doubt and hesitate? He says, even Buddhas and Bodhisattvas reflect deeply before committing. 
So he says, okay, I've thought about it. I'm not going to hesitate anymore. Once committed, one needs to follow through. For if I bind myself with promises but fail to carry out my words and deeds, then every being will have been betrayed. What destiny must lie in store for me? And here's the consequences of not following through. If in the teachings it is said that one who has his thought intends to give away a little thing but then draws back, will take rebirth among the hungry ghosts. How can I expect a happy destiny if from my heart I summon wandering beings to the highest bliss, I commit to, to serve all sentient beings, but then deceive and let them down? You know? So I don't want to do that. It's not so... It's pretty heavy. He talks a lot about hell realms and all kinds of realms that, that one can go to. Whether you take them literally or in the mind, you can create a hell realm in your mind if you don't live up to your ideals and then um, deceive yourself and others. But Pema Chodron makes the point, and I think it's a really important one, there are going to be temporary lapses. You know, you can commit, say, yeah, I'm going for it, and then you just see again and again how humbled and humbling it is. You see the power of the conditioning. So it's it's not that you never make mistakes, but you just keep on recommitting so that the inspiration is there. <clears throat> This failure, turning away from bodhicitta, is indeed the gravest of all bodhisattva downfalls, for it sh should it ever come to pass, the good of every being is cast down if you turn away from it. And all the people who might be served by your commitment are, are not benefiting from that, and they will be, they will be worse off for it. And anyone who for a single instant halts the merit of a bodhisattva will wander endlessly in states of misery because the welfare of all beings is brought low. Destroy a single being's joy and you will work the ruin of yourself. But if the happiness of all is brought to nothing, what need is there to speak of this? Now, he, she makes the point, Pema Chodron says, we might all, you might be, traveling around bodhisattvas all the time and not even realize it. They just might have fallen for, for a moment. And so if you're not kind to this person who might be giving you a hard time, and it happens that they might be a bodhisattva, and you're making it harder for them to achieve their aspiration, that's pretty heavy. So you want to treat everybody around you as if they were a bodhisattva. That's a nice way to go through life, isn't it? Reminds me of the, the story of uh, these, uh, this monastery that was going under. Uh, it's, a beautiful, it's a beautiful story. It's in Jack and Christina's book. that's um, now called Soul Food. This monastery was, was in uh, a Christian monastery in disrepute, in, in, uh, in uh, uh, disrepair. <laughs> Wrong word there, yeah. High ethics, but in uh, but uh, not very inspiring, and um, 
and they were there were just five left in this monastery and they uh, it was and they were all old and they they decided to go to um, the rabbi who they respected even though a different religion and ask for some wisdom maybe the rabbi can give us some wisdom and uh, one of them goes and and he says uh, well I won't tell you how you can build up your monastery that's what they wanted to do to have a thriving monastery again but I will tell you that one of you might be the Messiah and they go back, and when this guy comes back, he says, you won't believe what the, what the rabbi said. It's really weird. He says, one of us might be the Messiah. Well, they first say, well, it couldn't be him. It couldn't be him. Well, maybe it is. Who knows? It couldn't, well, it couldn't be me. You know, I don't, well, they all start treating each other as if they were the Messiah. And the love that comes out of their, their new perspective is so palpable and, and, and inspiring that people gather from far and wide just to feel all the love in this monastery. And it, of course, grows and grows and is, uh, is uh, thriving and uh, a great inspiration. What a way to go through your life to think everybody around you might be a bodhisattva or everybody around you might be a Buddha they are. How could it be any other way? Bodhisattva, maybe they not, maybe they might not have taken a vow, but there's a Buddha inside every one of us, and uh, if you relate to people like that, you'll bring that out in them, and you'll feel pretty good in the process. <clears throat> Therefore, I will act devotedly according to the promise I've made. For if I fail thus to apply myself, I'll fall from low to even lower states. Striving for the benefit of all that lives, unnumbered Buddhas have already lived and passed. But I, by virtue of my sins, have failed to come up with the compass of their healing works. He, there's a lot of self-deprecation in, uh, in Shanti Deva's uh, exposition, but he does it not to put himself down, but just to, to kind of stir himself up saying, come on, let's get on with it. You can do better. And, uh, and it's, it, it's all in the spirit of, um, of a deepening commitment. And uh, uh, Pema Chodron makes the uh, gives the example of three attitudes that that let us, um, that keep us caught in our unskillful attitude, uh, unskillful um, um, ways in the world. Three attitudes of mind. There are three kinds of pots. The full pot, the, what is it? The pot with poison in it and the pot with the hole in the bottom. The full pot, is when we go around thinking we know everything. You know, there's that, that story of the, the guy who, uh, who goes to the, the Zen master and he says, um, uh, and he's a, this wise, learned professor from, from Japan, and he says, uh, 
tell me your teachings. But the Zen master sees that this guy is just so full of, his, of himself and full of his ideas that he, he knows he's going to not, not really be able to get his teachings in. And he says, okay, well, first, let's have some tea. And he starts pouring the, the professor the tea. He keeps on pouring it, even gets up to the brim, keeps on pouring it and starts to flow all over the cu- uh, overflow out of the cup and onto the professor's lap. And he says, uh, finally, the professor can't hold himself. And he says, why are you still pouring this tea? It's all full. Can't, cup can't hold anymore. And the Zen master says, ah, so, well, just as your cup can't hold any more tea, your mind is so full of ideas, it can't hold my teachings. You first have to empty your cup, and then I can give you my teachings. So that's the, the pot that's full. Then there's the pot with poison in it, which is the mind that's filled with judgment, criticism, cynicism, um, tight, contracted mind that's poisoned itself. And then there's the pot that's full of holes, and that is uh, the distracted mind that it's always leaking, energy leaks, looking here, there, scattered everywhere. And, uh, you know, maybe you can relate to one of these pots or another, and we can all get our pot a little spiffed up. And this will always be my lot if I continue to behave like this. I will suffer pains and bondage, wounds and lacerations in the lower realms. We get addicted to our behaviors. Isn't it amazing? Even when you know better, you get caught. And this is where mindfulness is the key. If you can see how you get caught, then you can start to wake up. It's very humbling to see, but without it, you are doomed to repeat again and again the errors of your ways. Not to waste this opportunity. Here's the precious human birth. The appearance of the Buddhas in the world, true faith and the attainment of the human form, an aptitude for good, all of these are rare. And when will this come to me again? Today, indeed, I'm hale and hearty, have enough to eat and and without affliction, and yet this life is fleeting and deceptive. This body is but briefly lent to me. And yet the way I act is such that I shall not regain a human life if I keep on making my mistakes and losing my precious human form. My evils will be many, virtues none. says, if you have good conditions... If you are living in Berkeley, coming to uh, the Dharma, practicing, having pretty much your needs taken care of to the point where you're not living in fear and you have enough comforts so that you can devote to yourself somewhat to Dharma practice, don't waste it. One could easily just go to the habit of enjoying your comforts and taking them for granted and saying, oh, you know, maybe a little bit more comfortable. That'll make me happy. 
Or if you take the bodhisattva vow, you're saying, wow, I have it so good. I am so blessed. Let me enjoy all the, the comforts I've been given and appreciate them, but use them to support my continued awakening, not to fall into um, indolence, but rather to use the opportunity. Here is now the chance for wholesome deeds, but if I fail now to accomplish virtue, what will be my lot? What shall I do when trapped in lower realms, enmeshed in misery, if I go just the way of, of comfort? This is why Lord Buddha has declared that like a turtle, that penchance can place its head within a yoke adrift upon a shoreless sea. This human birth is difficult to find. You know that analogy of a turtle surfacing once every hundred years, the likelihood of it sticking its head through a yoke is greater than being born into a human form. Wow. Isn't that amazing? And you say, come on. You've, some people have heard me say this before. I love this fact that Wes Nisker, who was here last week, has in his, uh, in his book, Buddha's Nature, that right now, in your mouth, there are more living organisms than there have been human beings since the beginning of time. Right? So it's pretty rare. It's pretty rare to be born a human. Let's use the opportunity well. <clears throat> if evil acts of but a single instant lead to deeper hell for many ages, the evils I've done from time without beginning need no need to say that they will keep me from states of bliss. And mere experience of such pain does not result in being freed from it, for in the very suffering of such states, more evil will occur, and then in great abundance. What does that mean? Okay, you start, the more you act out of greed, hatred, and delusion, whether you believe in hell realms of actual existence, who knows, I don't know. But you do know what it's like to be in the hell in your mind. And as you create more pain and sorrow for yourself, the contraction that comes with it makes it harder to see clearly. So it, unless you're on a track to wake up, um, you will either be continuing your confusion, or if you act really unskillfully, chances are you'll create more and more contraction, which makes it harder and harder to see clearly. So you're going down a road that will not lead to anything but trouble. Mm. Okay, now it talks about the destructive power of these negative emotions, what are called kilesas in, uh, in the Theravadan, K-I-L-E-S-A, kilesa, or klesha in, uh, in Tibetan uh, vocabulary. Sometimes they're called defilements. 
sometimes they're called hindrances, all the ways that the mind gets caught and confuses. And there are five particular ways that, five faults of the kalesas. <clears throat> I am as if benumbed by, by sorcery, my mind reduced to total impotence with no perception of the madness overwhelming me. Oh, what is it that has me in its grip? How do I get so confused? Okay. Well, the first of these faults well, is this. Anger, lust, these enemies of mine are limbless and devoid of faculties. They have no bravery, no cleverness. How then have they reduced me to such slavery? The first is that we're put under their spell. It's like they, they put us in a trance. Oh, this will feel so good. Oh, I have every right to slam that person. And it's like we, you know, the, the uh, uh, guilty, uh, not guilty by insanity. It's like that. We get, we lose our sanity when we're under the, the grip of the, these forces of mind. The second fault, it is I who welcome them within my heart, allowing them, allowing them to harm me at their pleasure. I who suffer all without resentment, thus my abject patience all displaced. The welcoming them into your heart is... Um, is the makes the point that they're so familiar it's like they're home okay come on home this is this is who i am and it's just you know that's just the way it is you welcome them into your heart because you think that's the way one goes through life they're so familiar you don't realize the danger in them and i'm reminded of uh um, a teaching that I got from a, a friend who uh, perhaps some of you might know, this uh, really amazing um, artist, Michelle Cassou, who has taught the painting experience. Anybody know Michelle Cassou? Yeah. Um, she, uh, she teaches this way of using, using the creative process, it's like Vipassana on paper, where you just, you don't think, you just keep on painting and let whatever comes out, come, uh, comes out, whatever come out, comes out. And uh, I did it a number of years ago, and uh, my wife Jane has done it, a number of friends have done it. Oh, Anna Douglas does um, a creativity retreat each year at Spirit Rock using this process. Anyway, Michelle, uh, shared a series of paintings of her own process one uh, one time, and uh, it, it was quite extraordinary to, to for her to share her own painting process. And there was this one series that had to do with um, death and rebirth. And in this one picture, I'll never forget, she had died, and she was in the coffin. And at the under the ground, 
and there was a, a shaft that was leading from the ground through through the earth through the sky up to this these buddha fields up on the up in the clouds with beautiful pictures of beautiful buddhas and bodhisattvas up on the top and she was still down in the coffin where she said as she was sharing what had come through her as she was painting it. She said, there in the coffin, I was there with maggots and worms and it was it was warm and, and dank and kind of you know yucky, but it was home. It was just kind of where I was hanging out and it was comfortable. I was familiar with it. And I knew that all I had to do is just decide to go up and leave the coffin. I could go up to the Buddha fields, but it seemed like such a big effort, you know. You ever feel that? Like, oh, I know this is a drag, but it's just, you know, the way I do it. You know, It'll be so much energy to make a change, to steer the whole ship around, you know. We welcome it into our heart out of familiarity and laziness. Sometimes people don't know what to do without their suffering. You know, That's who I am. My God, if I don't have my suffering, what will be left of me? I won't have a story. I won't have a, you know, a melodrama or you know, maybe I'll just have to be happy or peaceful. Or... So... Third fault. No other enemy indeed has lived so long as my defiled emotions. Oh, my enemy, afflictive passion, endless and beginningless companion. Makes the point, once you start becoming so familiar with it, it's just a kind of, it becomes your long-time companion, and it's really hard to shake. So it'll be with you for a while, for quite a while. Fourth, all other foes that I appease and wait upon will show me favors, give me every aid, but should I serve my dark, defiled emotions, they will only harm me and draw me down to grief. Pema Chodron calls this the fault of you give your afflictive emotion, your kalesa, an inch and it will take a mile. You know, just the first little hook. Oh, this will feel okay and you're gone. Fifth fault. Therefore, if these long-lived ancient enemies of mine, the wellspring only of increasing woe, can find their lodging safe within my heart, what joy or peace in this world can be found? If the jail guards of the prisons of samsara, the butchers and tormentors of infernal realms, all lurk within me in the web of craving, what joy can ever be my destiny? You'll never find peace inside, and you will not contribute to peace outside in the world as you more and more fall prey to these afflictive emotions. Mm.
Then uh, he talks a bit about if you can turn the ship around and start to withdraw from the kalesis, you can experience a kind of um, kalesa withdrawal where it takes, it's, it's painful to give up your habits, isn't it? But Pema Chodron makes the point that it's this interesting paradox. Kalesas or hindrances or these difficulties, they feel good at first, but on the back end, there's more and more pain and suffering. The withdrawal from them really deciding to turn your life towards the light at first is really hard because you're giving up these old familiar patterns but on the back end it's more and more freedom and ease and peace. So this is about going through the difficulties of giving them up. The wounds inflicted by the enemy in futile wars are flaunted by the soldier as a trophy. So in the high endeavor for so great a prize, why should hurt and injury dismay me? When fishers, butchers, farmers, and the like, intending just to gain their livelihood, will suffer all the miseries of heat and cold, how can I, can I not bear the same to gain the happiness of beings? That is, <clears throat> you'll be humbled again and again, and you'll go through your, you'll have your battle scars, you'll see ways that you've caused suffering or that you've grappled with the these forces in your mind or maybe you've gotten caught in your confusion and been on the receiving end of suffering or those are all battle scars to wear with um, pride might not be the right word but a sense of accomplishment that Every pain that I endure or that I experience in my determination to face the way of the bodhisattva, all the difficulties, all the lessons that I learn, as painful as they are, yeah, we get scarred here and there, but they are... Um, Trophies, as he says, trophies to to really to really appreciate. Why should hurt and injury dismay me? How can I not bear the same to gain the happiness of beings? You can feel good about your willingness to endure. <clears throat> when I pledged myself to free from their affliction. Beings who abide in every region, when I took the Bodhisattva vow, stretching to the limits of the sky, I myself was subject to the same afflictions. That is, I'm flawed, but here I am pledging to release everybody from their suffering. Thus, I did not have the measure of my strength. To speak like this, to make this vow, was clear insanity, he says. More reason then for never drawing back, abandoning the fight against defiled confusion. He says, when I made that vow, I didn't realize what I was getting into. You know, like 
I can't believe I'm going to be relieving the suffering of all beings. It was clearly insane, but now that I made it, wow, what a blessing that I could be so inspired to actually go for it. And he's saying, although I was insane then, now that I've, I've been fortunate enough to make that vow, I'm facing in the right direction and I will more and more live, become more and more sane and, uh, and, and embody what I aspired to. This shall be my all-consuming passion. Filled with rancor, I will wage my war. Though this emotion seems to be defiled, it halts defilement and shall not be spurned. This is if you get caught in anger. Oh, I, it can be your, actually your turnaround. You can use it in that warrior spirit. Okay, I'm going to not be mean to everybody around. I'm going to be a warrior with my defilements with my confusions and use that against itself. And then the last last part is um, about the joy that comes with facing your kilesis. Common enemies, when driven from the state, retreat and base themselves in other lands and muster all their strength the better to return. But our afflictions are without such stratagems. Enemies, they can run and hide, but your afflictions, they can't run and hide. Defiled emotions scattered by the eye of wisdom. Where will you now run when driven from my mind? Whence would you return to do me harm? That is, they can be defeated when you really see them for what they are. It's actually possible to conquer the mind, conquer the heart. And yet, defilements are not in the object, nor yet within the faculties, nor somewhere in between. And if not elsewhere, where is their abode? Whence they might wreak havoc on the world, they are simply mirages. And so take heart. What does that mean? They are mirages. They're all created where? In your own mind. They have no substance whatsoever. And so when you see the emptiness of them, when you see they are completely insubstantial, they seem so real when you're in the middle of them. But when you turn your awareness onto them and see, oh, this is just a thought I'm believing. Oh, here's confusion. That's what it is. Oh, here's fear. Oh, here's anger. Wow, look at it. And as you probably have seen from your own meditation practice, when you look directly at it, 
what happens? Can you find your anger? You look at it, you feel it. Oh, there's tightness in the chest or clenching in the jaw. Oh, that's what that energy is. Or there's a tightness in the mind. The mindfulness itself that sees, oh, and here's anger. In a moment, it dissolves. This enemy that seemed so insurmountable or the 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 pain of attachment oh i want i want i want and then you turn your awareness and what is the wanting mind anyway oh let's check it out oh that's how it feels oh look at it wow it's so tight ooh oh it's so hungry oh it's how interesting when you look at it directly and you become a kind of a, what Ramdas used to call a connoisseur of your neuroses. Right? It's, it's not necessarily that they're going to vanish for good. You don't even have to get rid of them. Just in the moment that you see them with awareness, they have no power over you. Well, that's what's going on. I just got hooked. And so as formidable as these foes, so-called foes, seem to be, that can put us in a hell realm in our mind in a moment, in another moment, can be seen through and are dispelled. But in the next moment, they can arise again. And in the next moment, they can be dispelled. There's a saying in India, even a 93-year-old saint isn't safe. Right? Just one moment away, the mind gets hooked. But in one moment, the whole game is seen through and you're free. A moment of freedom is available right now. Oh, just believe that story. And so it's more and more, it's kind of like a binary function. You're either lost in confusion or you have woken up from it. And when you've gotten lost, oh, come on back, just wake up. But you have to be continually recommitting because it's so easy to get lost. So there's this seeing through the game and then continually recommitting again and again. And when you do that, when your commitment isn't just for yourself, as Shanti Deva is, is saying, but for the benefit of all beings, everybody benefits from your commitment. When you see how insubstantial and empty all of these confusing, conflicting emotions are. So this is the last stanza. And this is how I should reflect and labor, taking up the precepts just set forth. What invalid in need of medicine ignored his doctor's words and gained his health? I'll use these precepts and this commitment to skillful action um, to support my vow. That's the end of this chapter. And then the next chapter is about how to tame the mind, vigilance. This is a continuation of this, this first chapter. So before we, we'll open up to a discussion in a moment, I'd just like you to um, go inside, mind.
or the doubting mind. But these other ways that the mind gets snagged, caught in contraction and confusion, Noticing that in just one moment a thought can come and take us over. Uh, a few ways to define it. Delusion can mean, one, not seeing clearly. That is, being spaced out and not present, not clear. But on a deeper level, delusion is um, taking this self to be separate. That is, identifying with this sense of self. It's actually taking what's impermanent to be permanent, you know, not realizing the truth of impermanence, not realizing, taking what is a cause of suffering to be a cause of happiness, that is grasping, oh, if I get this, I'll be happy, not realizing this is causing suffering, and taking that which is really a selfless process to be a solid, separate self. Those are the three qualities of, of delusion uh, in, a, in a more refined level. It's just not seeing things clearly. Yeah, yeah. you can just pass it down. Excuse my hoarseness, but Go ahead. about a week ago I had a pre-root canal, speaking of attachments and experiences. What? Speak a little. You, oh, you had, you had, I, I had a really painful tooth that got a root canal. Was that today? Was that no, oh, okay. uh, luckily not. But um, uh-huh. there I was, knowing the practice of just let it in, don't resist, you know, uh, just be aware of it. But it was a practice, right? I learned it. There's a me being aware of for a reason, etc. I happen to be reading uh, a book by Tara Singh, who was talking about the silence in between talk, in between thoughts, mm-hmm. and direct spontaneous attention. Mm-hmm. And something happened. I got it, and I was, I was, I was aware in a different way of the pain, and it instantly became my friend, the pain, mm-hmm. which doesn't happen to me very often. Usually, the pain wins, and I'm wondering. How can we get better at something that's got to be so spontaneous and genuine that whenever you practice it, you kind of create more separations in your mind? Is that, am I being clear? I, I, I didn't follow the last part. Okay. How can you get better at being just aware? At being just aware. How can you get better when, at being just aware? When practicing and learning and all that, seems to just create more mental concepts and separations in your mind. Because what happened there with me was something completely spontaneous. So that's, that's the question. 
So how does that spontaneity, how does that spontaneity happen? And yes, how, how does one till the ground for it? The way I see it, every moment of mindfulness is tilling the ground. So without the concepts, you know, let go of all the concepts, just being present, those, even just the intention to be present is planting seeds that will ripen in their own time. So I think perhaps you're stumbling upon that in the middle of the root canal. There were causes and conditions for that stumbling, as uh, Trunk Rinpoche uh, said, uh, let me say, um, uh, things, uh, um, um, grace seems to happen by accident and practice seems to make you more accident prone. That your, your intention and those, the, 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 the moments that you've put in to wake up they bear fruit in their own time. A lot of times, I do beginning class. Oh, by the way, somebody had, had asked me about the next beginning class. I'm going to be doing one October 13th. It'll start again, a six-week series here. You know, people go through the beginning class, and they're they're saying, uh, well, you know, just the med- it doesn't seem like anything is happening in the meditation. I just kind of get spaced out. My mind wanders, you know. And, you know, people saying, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. You know, and then I'll say, how many people have found that, um, that their lives have, uh, have been benefiting these last, last few weeks? You know, mo- two-thirds of their hands go up. Yeah, I'm just a little bit more calm. I'm a little bit more centered. And pe- my, my family seems to like me a bit better. And, uh, you know, how does that happen? It's not what's happening right in the meditation, but that turning towards waking uh, waking up has its own process. So I I think that that's really how it works. As long as you're facing in the right direction and doing your part and being as present as you can in this moment, it keeps on unfolding. Anything else? Okay, so let's uh, let's close with a loving kindness practice. Just feeling your own heart center, and breathe in from around you all the support of life, the benevolence in life. It wants to support you. Open up and let yourself receive it. Fill your being with that benevolence. And as you breathe out, surround yourself. Let it radiate out and extend it out. Share it as a gesture of generosity. And let it awaken or remind you of the goodness that's right inside of you.
And let yourself feel that basic goodness, your bodhicitta, your seed of awakening. And wish yourself well with that recognition. May I stay in touch with all of my goodness. May I feel my love and share it well. May I see through my fears and confusions and hold them with kindness and wisdom. And then extending out to everyone here and continuing out and out to all beings in all directions. As I want to be happy, may all beings find happiness in their lives. As I want peace, may all find peace in their lives. May all feel their love and share it well. And may all awaken to their true nature beyond their confusions and see who they really are. And may our coming here together be of benefit not only to ourselves, but to everyone we know, and be of benefit to all beings everywhere. May all beings find peace and happiness in their lives. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.